Let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And for those of you who don't have your Bibles, it will be up on the screen above me, and you can follow along as I read. I had a little panic uh, just a few seconds ago because I put, read 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 9 in my notes, but then I didn't put the verses in my notes. So I, I told my wife, get my phone, get my phone, get my phone. And so here's my phone, and I turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 through 9. Let's give attention to God's word this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Those of you with children undoubtedly have seen the children's magazine in a doctor's office, and I had to ask my wife this morning as we were driving up, what is the name of that magazine, that children's magazine in doctor's offices that have the games, and you know it, highlights? I, have, I, I took more joy in those highlight magazines than my kids did. My kids didn't care one wit about those magazines, they were petrified because they knew they were going to see the doctor. So I got to enjoy the highlight magazines. But there was a game in one of those, a puzzle in one of those, and the puzzle was called, What's Wrong With This Picture? And of course, the challenge for the children, or maybe the adults, was to look at the picture and determine what doesn't fit in this picture, and, and to circle it, or to exit out. And usually, uh, one illustration that I actually do remember, it was an illustration had a cat with a shoe on its head, a house that was missing a shutter, a fish growing on a tree. Those were just a few of the things I remember. And there were lots of things that were just out of place. And of course, the challenge was to figure them out. And I know I, it took hours for me to figure out some of those pictures. <laughs> Because sometimes I miss the obvious. obvious. Uh, wives, don't you experience that? Honey, would you go get the cinnamon in the cupboard? You open the cupboard? I, I, I can't find it, babe. Can't find it. And what happens? The wife comes, opens it, it's right there. Right on the first shelf. That's husband's disease. It really is. It's, it's missing the obvious. And we do miss the obvious. I think we... Thank you for that Amen. I think we have one of these moments in our text where we have an opportunity to miss the obvious. Something isn't right in this passage. Humanly speaking, something's going on here that just doesn't fit. People who are suffering various trials but rejoicing with joy inexpressible. It doesn't fit, does it? How can we rejoice in our trials? 
How can we rejoice in the difficulties and the struggles that we're experiencing? We have a large congregation. Harvest Community Church has a large congregation. Any number of people on any given day or week are experiencing difficult challenges. That is a part of life, isn't it? I, I don't know about you, but when I signed up to be a follower of Jesus, I didn't sign up because I was promised that things would be rosy. Unfortunately, in many of our churches today, that is the promise. That is the communication. Come follow Jesus and everything will be okay. Everything will fit together. And you know, the very next day, what seems to happen is the world comes crashing in on us. You go to a, a conference, you go to a concert, and you, maybe you run forward and you respond to an invitation, and then the next day, a family member passes away, or you lose your job, or the car breaks down, and you're going, wait a minute, this wasn't supposed to happen this way. How many of you experienced that? But in the midst of this trial, Peter seems to indicate we can have a joy inexpressible, a joy that you can't put words to. The picture we're used to, though, is when things go bad, we complain. We, we wallow in our self-pity. We want to escape. And, and Americans, uh, the way we escape these things, we soothe our souls or we smooth over our troubles with pleasure or with entertainment or with nicer surroundings or with creature comforts. We try to arrange the externals. Peter, Peter seems to reveal a much better way in this passage. We, we don't have to put on the spiritual makeup and pretend that everything's okay. How do we rejoice when trials come our way? How do we find joy when sorrow grips our hearts? And the reality is, Jesus told his disciples, and he tells us today, in this world you will have what? Tribulation, trouble, difficulty. Because of Easter Sunday, though, that's not the last chapter, is it? That's not the final word. Verse 8 tells us, here's the joy Peter's speaking about. It is joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, how do you explain that? How do you explain, explain joy inexpressible so great that language fails to articulate it? How do you, how do you exp express joy full of glory in the midst of grief that is often like a furnace, in the midst of difficulties that you can't explain? Where do we find that kind of joy? Where do I get that kind of joy? I think that's the more important question, is not so much can that joy exist, but how do I get it? How do I get me some of that? I don't know about you, but how many of you remember the movie When Harry Met Sally? She's in a restaurant, and Harry challenges her to do something. And so she does something at this table, and everybody around her, when the waitresses come to her, they say, what will we have for dinner? And she says, I'll have what she's having. Have you, have you ever been around somebody that's so excited with something that you're like, I, I just want a little bit of what they have? What, what, what do they have? Where did they get this joy? Where did they get this experience? Where did they get this feeling that they're feeling. I want a little bit of that. And I hope that if you are sitting in the midst of a struggle or a difficulty this morning, if you are struggling with grief, if you are struggling with pain or sorrow, 
that you'll realize that there is joy inexpressible even in the midst of that. And that we can have it today. We don't have to wait for it in the future. If you look down at verse, verses 3 through 5, Peter describes his readers as having a living hope. The spring that supplies joy constantly to their hearts, bubbling to the surface even when they're engulfed in suffering, is this living hope. And we don't understand this kind of living hope, do we? We understand hope in our context as, as a wish. How many of you, when you go on vacation, you look out at the, if you do beach vacations like my family typically does beach vacations, maybe your vacation is a, is a mountain vacation, and that's great. Maybe you like the hills of Tennessee. Maybe you would prefer a, a little trout stream in the middle of the woods. Uh, my family likes to sit on the beach for hours on end doing nothing. We often don't have people go with us. Our friends don't often go with us because they don't want to do that. They want to go enjoy the other things that are on vacation. We want to enjoy the beach. But how many of us, I know that I've awakened on vacation sometimes go, boy, I just hope it doesn't rain today. I think about going fishing. Trout season's in. And all the trout were washed away because of the rain we had these past week. But Trout season's in, and you wake up and you think, boy, I, just, I sure hope it doesn't rain today because I want to catch some fish for dinner. That's the kind of wishful thinking that is not the hope of the Bible. The hope of the Bible is certainty. See, on this side of heaven, there is no certainty for us. There's only one certainty. What is that? Death Oh, and taxes. But death is a certainty. You can only run so long when you don't pay your taxes. But death is a certainty. 100% of us will experience it. But we don't look at hope that way. That's not at all the New Testament idea of Christian hope. That's not a living hope. I want you to picture for a moment living with significant hardship. How all of us do, don't we? To a certain degree, to one degree or another, all of us live with difficulty. That is the human condition. But I want you to imagine that you're scraping by, maybe some of you are. Maybe you're just barely making it. Maybe you're having a hard time week after week after week making the, the ends meet. And, and maybe some of that has to do with poor decisions. And that's a reality, too. We make unwise decisions. Maybe some of that has to do with something else going on in our life that we just can't make ends meet. It's a constant struggle, though. And then one day, a lawyer comes to see you, and now, often, that's not good news when a lawyer comes to see you. Sorry if there's any lawyers in here. That wasn't a personal slam. But when a lawyer comes knocking at your door, it's typically not good news. But a lawyer comes to you, and instead of bad news, the lawyer tells you that you are a beneficiary of a great inheritance. There will be some months between now and when you receive this inheritance, but what happens to your perspective on life? You've been told you have a great inheritance. You've been told... It's promised to you. It's coming your way. It's going to happen. You're going to have to wait for a few minutes or a few months or a few years. But it's a reality. It's a certainty. 
That's precisely what Peter says the Christian hope really is. There is this idea in the church, in theology, in the Bible of the already not yet. How many of you woke up this morning and you already feel justified? And you know, let me unpack that word justified for you. Just as if I'd never sinned. Just if I'd never sinned. And see, that's how God looks at us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Like I've never made a mistake. How many of you felt that way this morning? I didn't feel that way this morning. I woke up thinking, I woke up feeling like there was a little cloud above my head. I didn't wake up experiencing justification in Jesus Christ, but the reality is you are perfect from your Heavenly Father's perspective. That should, you should be rejoicing over that. It's the already, not yet. You are already perfect. But you know what? Even the Apostle Paul recognized, I still have to live in this body of death. I still have to struggle every day with, not, with doing the very thing I don't want to do. And that's Romans 7. The very thing I want to do, I find myself not doing it. And the things I don't want to do, I'm doing it. That's the struggle that we live with. That's the already not yet. We're already perfect. We already have the, the, the righteousness of Christ given to us. But I don't feel like it, do I? And you don't feel like it either. A thought fleets through your mind and you go, where did that come from? And you're struggling. But verse 4 says that this inheritance that we have is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's not in a bank. It's, it's not subject to the taxes of the federal government. And if you have a large inheritance, this is what you can expect. 40% of that inheritance, if it's over a certain amount of money, will go to the federal government. And if you happen to live in Pennsylvania, another 10% is going to go to the state of Pennsylvania. So 50% of your inheritance, if it's over a certain amount of money, is going to go to the government. Uh, by the way, this is just a, an infomercial. There are ways you can shelter that to make that not happen. <laughs> there really are, and they're legal ways. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm surprised I had to say that. There really are. But listen to this. This is living hope. This is living hope. It's a spring constantly supplying joy here and now, even for a little while if necessary, Peter says, you are grieved by various trials. And what, what that living hope says is this is not the end. I've got more ahead of me. It's, it's kind of that feeling of, of Christmas Eve as a child. Maybe you get that teaser gift on Christmas Eve. In my family, it was PJs. My kids, it was my job to give my kids PJs, Christmas PJs. And it was a teaser because you know why? That wasn't the only gift they got. They got to wake up the next morning at, at, an, at an ungodly hour and wait in their beds until we could say, go! And then they run down the steps. And that's kind of, we, we've been given a teaser. We've been given, the teaser's the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. The teaser is the, the deity that resides in us. 
that, that allows us to cry out, Abba, Father, that reminds us of our connection with the Heavenly Father, that reminds us that this life is not the final chapter, but it's, the teaser is not the whole picture. And that's what Peter's telling them. In verse 3, and this is really where I want to camp out for the remainder of our time, but verse 3 is really powerful. Peter explains the foundation of this living hope that's really, it's ours. But here's what he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why we're here this morning, isn't it? We are here this morning to celebrate the fact that death was not the final chapter in Jesus' life, that, je- that death did not have the victory in his life, and it doesn't have the victory in our life. Because Jesus has resurrection, we can have resurrection too. We have that inheritance. It's a living hope. We can hang on to it knowing that this tent, this body is going to fade away, but we have an eternity in heaven with a new body that will never fade away. Are you excited about that? I want to hear it more if you're excited about it. So there's really three things, and I I left you a lot of notes. I left you a lot of room in your maps to add notes. I'm going to give you three real quick ones that if you want to write down, you can. Here's what we're going to look at. First, this living hope is the possession of those who are born again. This living hope is the possession of those who are born again. Secondly, we are born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what Peter's telling us. We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here's the third thing. Here's the foundation. Here's the ground of all of that. Here's the foundation, the ground of our living hope. The mercy of God the Father that stands as the cause of everything else, of the resurrection, of our new birth, of our living hope, of joy inexpressible, full of glory. It's all the gift of God's mercy. So let me quickly go over those again. First, the living hope is the possession of those who are born again. Second, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's right in your text, right in, right in verse 3. And then thirdly, the mercy of God the Father stands as the cause of, of all of that. God's mercy stands at the cause of all of that. So let's Think about the first of those things together. Living hope becomes a reality when we are born again. That's when this joy begins to bubble to the surface in our hearts, isn't it? See, Christianity, faith in Jesus Christ, as we know it, Christianity, is not, first of all, an ethical system. It's not, first of all, a set of rules or abstract morality. It is not first a philosophy and a worldview. It is not first a religious code or religious or ritual behaviors by which the faithful express their devotion. And, and, and here's where I think too many parents get it wrong. And I've gotten it wrong too. That's what we tell our kids Christianity is about. 
It's about checking off the boxes of good deeds. It's about checking off the boxes of doing things right. It's about checking off the boxes. That is not first what Christianity is. See, if we, if we teach our kids and train our kids that that's what Christianity is, when they become adults, they will leave. If we don't teach our kids to love a person, that's what Christianity is all about. It's loving the person of Jesus, not the rules. To be sure, Christianity has an ethic. You can read some of, that eth- some of the ethics in the Ten Commandments. You can read some of the ethics in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about things we ought to do, the Beatitudes, attitudes that we need to have. It has an ethic. It has a worldview. It is a worldview. In fact, I was talking last night to Hamish saying, really, Christianity is a lens. It's the lens at which I look at everything. It's the lens at which I look at all of life. Christianity is a body of doctrine and a practice that allows us to express our devotion to God, but that's not what Christianity is in its essence. See, every other religion, every other religion in the world can be described as ethics plus philosophy plus ritual, but Christianity has one vital difference and it's called direction. You've never heard that before, have you? Christianity has one vital difference from all other religions in the world, direction. See, this is what all of the religions in the world are doing. Through their ethical systems, through their religious rituals, they are trying to get to God They are trying to go from man to God. But in Christianity, what's the direction? God to man. See, in in, in all other worldly systems, it is do before done. You do all these things, and then it's finally done. See, in Christianity, it's done first, and then we do. It's done. The cross has finished it. Jesus has finished it. He's resurrected to new life. And now we can can express love to him. We love, why? Because he, I can't hear you. He first loved us. We can't begin to love unless he first loves us. What direction is that? God to man. That's not me to God. What does the Bible say about my direction from me to God? I can't get there from here. I I can't get there from here. I can't do enough ritual. I can't can't beat beat my back enough. I can't light enough incense. I can't do enough good things to get to God. Why? Because Scripture says I am dead. I'm dead in my sin. I can't get to God. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again. God, by the supernatural agency of the Holy Spirit, must break into our life and renovate our hearts. 
change our hearts. I've, I've likened the work of the Holy Spirit to kind of like the work of the lightning bolt that resurrected the Frankenstein monster. And, and, and interestingly enough, I've told this story many times. I don't think I've told it here. I know I've told it at Freeport, but when I was in high school, I had an opportunity to go to a podiatry school with, with our class, our senior class. We had like 14 kids in our senior class. I went to a small Christian school in Ohio. And there were cadavers on the tables that had been donated for, for research and science. But the cadavers were half dissected. From the, and, they, and they start from the top down because podiatrists, they want to know how the feet affect the head. So they start from the head and they work down. Those body parts were in a bag and they had torso to feet. And me, being a precocious, stupid young man as a teenager, I was standing next to one of these cadavers and I had my pen in my hand and I went, doink! I poked it. And you know what happened? It jumped off the table! What happened? Nothing. Why? Why did nothing happen? Dead. That's, that's what our spiritual condition is, apart from Jesus. And see, Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein gets these parts, these cadaver parts, and he puts this monster together, and he sticks it on this table, and what does he say? Come to life. What happens? Nothing. He a storm, go, a storm comes and he goes, Igor, go, take the monster up. And they, Igor gets to that big thing and he's turning it and he's turning it and the bed is going up, up. And the, the sky opens up and this bolt of lightning hits this rod and it comes down and the monster starts shaking. It comes down, he's smoking, the body's smoking on the table. And then what happens? It's alive! That's exactly what happens spiritually to us. The Holy Spirit is that bolt of lightning that strikes a dead heart, brings it to life. See, you and I can't see it, do you? Because Jesus told Nicodemus, it's like the wind. The Holy Spirit is like the wind. It comes and goes. We don't know where it's coming from. We don't know where it's going, but we see the effects of the power of the Spirit in our life. See, living hope springs up, in our, springs up in our hearts when we are given new life through the living word. And that's what 1 Peter verse 1, 23 says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word. You know, I had an opportunity to be a camp director for 10 years, and there are many, many things I don't miss about being a camp director. But one thing I do miss, and I miss it every summer, we had about 75 to 80 college students and high school students come and do the work of the ministry for the summer. And that first week of staff training, about a week and a half of staff training, I had an opportunity to unfold scripture to them. And what excited me every morning of staff training, I, I, I had other staff that did some of the uh, technical things, teaching them to uh, save somebody in the swimming pool, giving them CPR lessons, teaching them high ropes and adventure course uh, principles, uh, teaching them how to discipline in cabins, because that's our staff stay with the campers all week long in cabins, and they have to discipline them. They have to be the parents for the week. But one of the things that excited me every single day was when opening the scripture to these young men and women, you'd see the light bulbs go on. 
you'd see these kids who had been raised in the church for many, many years, and the Bible is preached to them, and the gospel shared with them, and it's like, bing, I finally get it. I finally understand what's going on. I finally see what Jesus did for me. That's what the work of the Holy Spirit does through the Word of God. And again, it's not perceptible. But when God works by His Spirit and gives new birth to us in our hearts, it's life-changing and powerful. How many of you have grown up with, with people in a neighborhood and when you become a Christian, they acknowledge something's different about you? How many of you have experienced that? I know I have. I know and next to my picture in the yearbook is not what my friends see today. So let me ask you as simply and plainly and directly as I can, have you been born again? And don't make the same mistake that Nicodemus made. Do you mean I have to crawl back into my mother's womb? No, it's not physical. It's spiritual. Have you been born again? Has God, by the Holy Spirit, mysteriously, supernaturally, maybe quietly invaded your heart and made you a new creature? See, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters compared with your answer to that question, have you been born again? And you know what? It's easy to mouth the words, isn't it? It's easy to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. We, we are all pretenders. That's part of being sons and daughters of Adam. But here's the difference. We're not saved to a certain degree by profession of faith, although the Bible says confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus, uh, and you'll be saved. But profession of faith doesn't save us. Possession of faith does. What's the difference? I can profess something with my mouth, but when you're possessed by something, it changes you. When you see all those stories in the Bible of people possessed by a demon, they are changed. They become somebody else. They're not. We all saw, how many of us saw the movie Exorcist? The old, old movie. I'm, I know I'm probably aging myself when I say that. But there's this young woman whose head turns around on her shoulders. That's not her normal thing. She's possessed by something she has no control over. Some of you parents with young children probably see green stuff coming out of your kid's mouth, but this is not normal. Possession changes a person. Possession by the Holy Spirit has to change because darkness cannot exist in light. Where light is present, darkness cannot exist. And when the Holy Spirit invades your heart, invades your life, darkness must flee. Not all at once. It's a lifetime process, isn't it? It's a lifetime process of becoming more and more and more like Jesus. There's no living hope, though, unless the living word makes, you makes your dead heart come alive. There's no living hope. There's no spring bubbling up with joy in the midst of grief. There's no inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you without the new birth. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, today you must be born again. Have you been born again? If not, don't leave today without turning your life over to him. 
without surrendering your life to him, without getting out of the driver's seat and letting him drive your life. Because that's what being a Christian means. It means getting out of the driver's seat and letting him drive your life. Trusting him that he's going to take you where you need to go and produce in you the things you need to live in heaven. Because you know what? You can't live in heaven like this. You can't get there from here. You've got to be changed from the inside out. Secondly, I want you to notice the living hope that supplies enduring joy comes to those who have been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And isn't that the heart of Christianity? We spend so much time, and, I, and, and to a certain degree, I guess I'm, I'm happy that Easter has not become so overly commercialized like Christmas. It's really important that Jesus was born a man so more may die, but what's more important is that that man died and rose again. Because if he died and didn't raise again, our faith would be worthless, Paul says. Our preaching would be in vain. Our life would be meaningless. But if he died and rose again, there's power in preaching. There's power in the Word of God. Our life does have meaning and purpose, even the struggles and the difficulties. See, for Christianity, the resurrection is a fact. It's a fact. He did not swoon on the cross to be revived in the cool of the tomb later. Believe it or not, that's a theory. That Jesus just fell asleep on the cross. He swooned. He was so overcome with pain that he just oh, passed out. And they took him down off the cross, stuck him in a grave, and he came alive when the tomb was cool because the tomb was cool. No, they really stuck a spear into his side and they really pierced his heart and blood and water really did come down. Think about it. These Romans were expert executioners. They didn't do this just, oh, okay, let's just throw a body up on the cross and kill him. No, they did this professionally. That was their job, to kill people in the most excruciating manner possible. Jesus didn't fall asleep on the cross. He was not replaced by some substitute who was crucified instead of him. You know, they weren't walking down the Via Della Rosa one day when Jesus carrying the cross and all of a sudden someone came and said, Jesus, I'll take that. I'll take your pain for you. I'll take your place. No. Nobody replaced Jesus. Jesus chose the cross. He wasn't... He, he, he wasn't forced to do it. And I think that's what Nicole said this morning. He chose the nails. He chose the cross. He willingly went to the cross for you and I. He, he, didn't, he wasn't looking for a substitute. He wasn't looking for an out. Certainly in the garden, he was saying, Lord, if there's any other way to do this, let's make it happen. But he wasn't saying, I don't want to do it. He didn't, wasn't replaced and he certainly, the, the disciples certainly didn't steal the body. And that was one of the earliest, the earliest statements. That the, the disciples stole the body. In fact, Pilate, we need to send some people to that grave so the, the disciples don't come and steal this body. Because this guy, this crazy guy, said that he was going to raise in three days. We need to make sure. Let's seal the tomb. Let's get some guards on that tomb. Let's make sure no one steals the body. Okay. Let's suppose the disciples did steal the body. Let's just, just, for, just for the sake of our argument. 
if, if you stole Jesus' body, if you were back in the first century and you stole Jesus' body, would you be willing to be martyred? Would you be willing to lose everything? No. What I would do, because I'm a wimp, is I'd probably go, no, wait a minute, here he is. Here's his body. I've got him. He didn't die, really. He didn't raise again. Okay, don't, don't feed me to the lions. No. They wouldn't die for some guy who just fell asleep. They wouldn't give their lives and their property and their livelihood for, for a pretender. Jesus really died. See, that's what the new birth is. It's, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ flooding into the spiritually dead. It's giving us uh, existence in and through Christ and His resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with Him. That's why Easter matters. Because Jesus lives. God gives new life to dead sinners. We are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him. That's why being born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead gives us living hope. Gives us the spiritual security that can't be destroyed because it's not rooted in us. It doesn't come from us. It comes from a living Savior. It's rooted in the risen Christ who now reigns in glory. Our new life is not the result of aligning ourselves with a set of doctrines or lifestyle choices. It's not the fruit of a prayer that we prayed one day. Neither does it rest on the strength or the depth of our faith. It rests on being united with Jesus Christ in His death and His resurrection. That's where our faith rests. We have an inheritance, imperishable, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. It's untouchable. We are totally secure because we died. As Paul puts it in Colossians 3.3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And I love Galatians 2. I, I mentioned this Thursday night. It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, when I became a Christian, as an 18-year-old, Michael Harvey died. And, and I hope that's your response too. When you look at faith in Jesus Christ, you died when you said yes to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit began a work of transforming you, not into Michael Harvey, not into a super Michael Harvey, not into the Marvel comic Michael, Michael Harvey, but into the image of Jesus Christ. The problem is, we still think we're us. We, we still, I still think I'm Michael Harvey. I still act that way. 
I still think I have the authority and the power. It's not me who lives anymore. I'm dead. It's Christ who lives in me. And how do I live that life? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how I live that way. Because the tomb is empty, you live. Because the tomb is empty, you are a new creature. Because the tomb is empty, you will never die. Because the tomb is empty, you have living hope and inheritance that will be yours one day. Because the tomb is empty, you can rejoice with joy unspeakable, filled with glory, even in the midst of trials of various kinds. Even in the midst of this life that is a wet blanket world. See, the new birth, the resurrection of Christ, and then finally, giving rise to the living hope that fuels our joy, and this is our third point, is the mercy of God. The mercy of God. Let me read verse 3 again. According to his great mercy. I love, I love that Peter starts out that way. He doesn't start out with, according to your great need. He starts out with, according to his great mercy. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of of Jesus Christ from the dead. You can't generate the new birth on your own. You can't do it. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 reminds us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. There's no heartbeat, spiritually speaking. If today you don't know the risen Christ for yourself, the bad news is, is you can't do anything to change your own condition. How many of you that's news to? Especially in a world where you just have to listen to the right podcast. Or maybe you just have to get the right magazine. Or maybe you have to watch the, follow the right guru. See, in our, in our culture, that's all you need. Just go to the self-help section of the, the bookstore. Or the library. That's not going to cut it. You can't do it. You can't bring new life to yourself. You can't give yourself new life. You must be born again. No living hope without it. But you can't affect the new birth in your own heart. You must have what you cannot produce. So what must you do? Cry out for mercy. That's where new life begins. Cry out for mercy. And, and you know what? When you learn to cry out for mercy, that's when you really learn to pray. Because prayer isn't telling something that God... God isn't telling God something he doesn't already know. Do, do you think you surprise God in the morning when you wake up and say, Lord, I need this, or I'm feeling this way? No, he knows. He knows how you're feeling before you tell him. See, that's when prayer really begins, when we can cry out for mercy. That's when salvation begins too, when we, are at, when we realize that we can do nothing, nothing, nothing in our own strength. Parents, you need it for your kids too. When you get to a point where you just, you just can't do anything more for your kids, you just need to cry out for mercy. Well, what about your marriage? You get to the point where you just can't, you, there's no amount of counseling that you feel like is going to fix this thing. You just got to cry out for mercy. That's where it starts. That's where salvation begins. A cry for mercy. That's the ground of everything else, the reason for the resurrection, 
the mercy of God. The, re- the cause of our new life, the mercy of God. The basis of a living hope, the mercy of God. He abounds in mercy, ready to give it to all who ask him. Scripture says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the, gra- of the great love which with he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. See, Christianity and faith in Jesus doesn't come from our decision. It doesn't come from our words. It doesn't come from signing the card. It doesn't come from coming forward in a moment of when the preacher just hits it right. It comes from recognizing that you're loved by God and he's got mercy extending out to you. That's when salvation begins. It was mercy that sent Jesus. It was mercy that nailed him to the tree. Mercy that poured out heaven's wrath on our guilt resting upon his shoulders there. It was mercy that rolled the stone away and gave new life to our Savior's body. It is mercy that sits on the throne of glory so that dead sinners who run to him for mercy receive the mercy they so desperately need. Have you run to him for mercy? Some of you are ready. Some of you are ready. Some of you are like, yes, let's go. Let's run down the aisle. Let's sign the card. Let's try harder. Let's do better. And if you're saying that, you missed it. (laughs) If you're saying that, you missed it. But if you are saying that, perhaps you're moving in to a right posture, though. Because here's the right posture. You've forgotten that resurrection life is offered to you on the basis of sheer mercy alone. It's not whether you sign the card. It's not whether you run down the aisle. It's not the words you use. It's recognizing that the resurrection and the mercy of God provide us the the entrance into new life. Do you see what that means? It's it's, what's the commercial where people are sitting there going, free, 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 free. What's the commercial? Do you guys remember the commercial? Fios, free, free, free. That's what mercy is. It's free. Mercy is free. God's mercy is free. Salvation is free. Righteousness in Christ is free. It's nothing you and I can do, not wages in return for something you've done. It is a gift. It's mercy. It's what's on offer to you and I this Easter Sunday. That's why Jesus rose. There's a gift of new life offered on the basis of sheer, undeserved mercy. And that's, good. that's my invitation to you. Fall upon the mercy of God this morning. If you don't know Jesus, don't worry about the words. Don't worry about signing the card. Just, just cry out for mercy. And it's, it, it's just acknowledging, Jesus, I need you. That's it. I need you. It's available to you in the risen Christ. And mercy is what you'll receive, a new birth and living hope and an indestructible joy.